Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net. Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, blockchain, FDA compliance, and litigation. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something. Hi. She can't say hi or anything like that. It's just like her voices like sound like, yeah, or hi, or no. The grown-up you hear is Gail with her baby girl. She's about four months old. The baby, not Gail. And she's teething. She really likes to chew on her pizza. But she's still strictly bottle-fed. We haven't started any foods yet. She's happy, healthy, normal. She's been hitting her weight requirements. She's growing perfectly fine. All of her motor stuff she's hitting on. Like, we just had her four-month checkup, and the doctor's like, she's perfect. There's absolutely nothing wrong I could say to you. Like, she's doing great. I want to ask for any better of a baby. (laughs) The day this baby showed up in the world was a good day for Gail and her husband. Well, mostly. There was this one thing that happened in the hospital. I want to talk about delivery day. Oh my gosh. After nearly 30 hours of labor, she was in the home stretch. She was also delirious. But Gail remembers what the nurse said after catching sight of a note in her medical chart from months earlier. She definitely goes, oh, you used THC in your pregnancy. And I said, oh, I used it in the first trimester. But actually, that didn't matter. Nor did it matter that she was giving birth in Colorado, a legal state. The wheels went into motion, and the nurse told Gail that she'd need to be drug tested. And she goes, I'm sending the umbilical cord and I'm putting cotton balls in your child's diaper to check her urine to test for THC since she used it during pregnancy. So... Me being, like, super, like, blonde in general, I was like, you doing that for research? And she's like, no. She's like, just like if you were to drink alcohol during your pregnancy, we would have to check it for, like, alcohol in the umbilical cord. And as for what came next, well, she'd have to deal with that when she was done, you know, delivering this baby. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. This is the third and final installment in our series, Medicine versus Marijuana, about the ways that legal weed intersects with our healthcare system. Now, marijuana use during pregnancy is controversial. You're probably thinking, yeah, of course, duh. You know, podcast me something I don't know. But as more states sing along to the legalization song, it's become an increasingly fraught issue. And maybe you've made up your mind about Gail based on that one fact alone. She smoked pot while she was pregnant, regularly during her first trimester. And then after that, it was once in a while. 
Gail's originally from Ohio, but she and her husband live here in Colorado. And we're not using her real name for reasons that we will explain a little bit later on. But Gail is a nurse, and she has that sort of standard issue, I've seen it all kind of bluntness that you can expect from a nurse. I was probably only like four weeks when I found out the first So time. like really early. Yeah. Around the time she found out she was pregnant, she was a regular pot smoker. She was often on the third shift at the hospital where she worked, overnights. Sometimes she'd do three days in a row and then spend the next few days resting and sleeping during the day. Sometimes on those rest days, she'd smoke. After they decided to start trying for a baby, she and her husband talked about her marijuana use. And neither of them felt like it would be harmful to the pregnancy. I guess with being a nurse, and I grew up in a very pot-positive family, I guess is the best way to describe it. Everyone in my family smokes pot. My mom smoked when she was pregnant with me. I had a 4.0 in high school. I don't have any like ADHD. I didn't have any developmental delays type deal. So I don't see negative effects on children in utero with marijuana use. She cut back a lot after the first trimester. But she says pregnancy dragged her into a deep depression. And at times, smoking a joint helped combat those feelings. She says she felt like it was a combination of factors. She got pregnant in the winter while she was working overnights. She's estranged from her mother. And as her pregnancy progressed, she felt a longing for some kind of maternal figure who would understand what she was going through, what she was feeling. And she felt like she didn't have that. I had a lot of issues, anxiety and mental health-wise kind of hit me. There is a week that I legitly cannot leave the couch. My husband would ask me, like, what's going on? Like, why why won't you get up? Like, what's going on? And I was just like, "I, I don't know. In her first eight weeks, Gail came down with something. She thought it might be strep throat, and so she went and saw a doctor at an urgent care clinic. Just about marijuana, and I said, yeah, I smoke a couple times a week. It's kind of decreasing, you know, I'm pregnant, whatever. But I was just being honest. She says the doctor did not react, nor did she tell Gail not to smoke anymore. But she did make a note on Gail's chart. A few weeks later, Gail had her first appointment with her OBGYN. This was the first visit since she found out she was pregnant. The doctor, she's like, marijuana use, no. Because I kind of had like a gut feeling in the urgent care. Maybe honesty isn't the best policy in this situation type deal. Gail also didn't feel much of a connection with this doctor. She wasn't even there when I delivered the baby. And it's actually really funny because I heard the (laughs) office talking that she had a family emergency and she was leaving. And I literally like spoke down to my belly and I was like, come this weekend because I don't want her in the delivery room. And that's what happened. (laughs) So do you feel like maybe you didn't tell her about it because you didn't feel like you trusted her? That's probably it. So to recap, Gail mentioned her cannabis use once to a doctor early in her pregnancy. And it wasn't even her regular doctor. It was someone she saw one time in an urgent care. That was enough for it to end up on her medical chart. The second time it ever came up was in that delivery room when mommy and baby got drug tested. They put cotton balls in the baby's diaper because, well, have you ever asked a newborn baby to pee in a cup for a drug test? (laughs) 
And then the nurse comes back in and she explained the protocol. I'm not dumb. The umbilical cord was going to be positive. It didn't matter what. I still continue to smoke marijuana past my first trimester. A positive test result was all she could be certain of because she was otherwise getting lots of mixed signals about what was going to happen with her or her baby or her drug test. And as the nurse tried to explain how the state was going to handle this, the possibility that there might be some serious consequences around the corner started to dawn on both Gail and her husband. And before Gail could say anything, her husband spoke up. He finally goes, are you guys going to take our kid away? Like, I'm so confused. Like, I'm, like, nervous. And she goes, no, no, no. The only reason why I'm here is because it's scheduled one. I'm not worried about it. Like, I wouldn't even open this case if I didn't have to. It's the federal government's fault. And Gail found herself thinking. I feel stupid for bringing it up. If I just denied it and they had no, would they have ever, ever sent the umbilical cord? It is often the case that hospital policies regarding drug use and pregnancy, mandatory reporting, are actually not what the law says. And tell their hospital staff that reports are mandated when they are not. That's Lynn Paltrow, the founder and executive director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. She's a lawyer with lots of experience with cases like Gail's. Up until this year, Colorado required by law that if a parent or child tested positive for a controlled substance at birth, they must be reported to the state. Gail's drug test happened before this change, and it reflects a policy that's fairly common in other states. There's often discretion that may be exercised by healthcare providers and other people in healthcare settings about whether or not they have to report. For example, Massachusetts and New York do not mandate reporting based only on a positive drug test. It's based on what it should be based on. It's based on someone's actual ability to parent. Lynn says there are lots of problems with trying to determine that fitness to parent with a simple drug test. All it can tell you is use within a period of time, one use in a period of time. It can't tell you whether somebody's drug dependent, addicted, unable to do their jobs, or if they can parent. But what they do is effectively say to someone like me, a parent, here, pee in a cup, and we're going to test it. If it's positive, we're going to use it as a test for your parenting ability. And if Mm. it is positive for drugs, then it is also a test determining your fitness to parent. And we will now enter your lives with a level of surveillance and control that is only matched by the criminal law system. That can start with visits from a social worker and go all the way up to and include possible child removal. And that is not some rare last resort either. According to federal data from 2016, that's the last year available, 274,000 children were removed from their parents and placed in foster care. More than a third related to drug or alcohol use. That number has steadily increased since 2000, and a large number of these kids are under the age of one when they're removed from their parents. Literally within a week, DHS was at my door. A caseworker for the Department of Human Services paid Gail and her husband a visit. She comes in, she asks us questions. Do you currently smoke marijuana? 
And this caseworker from DHS asked Gail and her husband about their education. She asked about whether or not they had alcohol in the house. And Gail and her husband were told that they would need to provide two references, people who could speak to their character as parents. And Gail would need to pass another drug test. She hated this process, and especially hated that even after she submitted to all of this, she'd still be in trouble. She pretty much told us there, you're going to get charged with abuse and neglect. It felt like the decision had already been made, and nothing she could do or say would reverse what had been set in motion. It felt like deja vu, because Gail herself was once the child in a child abuse case. When I was seven, my mom actually ended up going to jail because she had seasoned stems in the house. So uh, for for weed, she went to jail for child endangerment for 30 days. And then she had to go to rehab. And it was all for marijuana because this is literally the end of the 90s. (laughs) And marijuana is, you know, super, super bad. I was there when she got arrested because they need a kid in the house to have that charge of child endangerment. Imagine being seven years old and watching cops pick through your parents' house looking for drugs. Gail remembers having to help her mom put on her shoes because the cops had already put her in handcuffs. And she remembers watching them lead her out of the house and put her into a patrol car. It all felt unreal to her, even as a kid. Because remember, she grew up in a house where pot was not a bad thing. It was something that the adults around her did sometimes. So it was really hard because I was like, my aunts do this all the time, but my mom's getting in trouble for this. I don't understand that. That arrest and everything that came after left a lasting mark on Gail, on her relationship with her mother, and with the rest of her family. We'll hear more about that, and I'll talk more with Lynn Paltrow about the law after this quick break. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. This is usually the part of our show where we're like, all right, yeah, let's see what the science has to say. Does marijuana have a negative effect on fetal development? Well, the science part is really tricky because, as we know, marijuana is a Schedule I substance considered as dangerous as heroin, which tends to stop any federally funded research before it can begin. But pregnancy is also an area of research that few even want to touch. It is actually the most under-researched medical condition out there. 
This reluctance to research pregnancy can be traced back to the 60s, when a morning sickness drug called thalidomide caused mass birth defects. Afterwards, pharmaceutical companies were far less likely to take the risk of developing and testing drugs in pregnant people. For a long time, it has actually been considered unethical to perform most kinds of research on a pregnant person, even if they volunteer. Most drugs are tested only on men. And this is about sexism. This is about a continuing all of the ways in which law and research supports male supremacy in this country. Pregnant women are considered therapeutic orphans because they are excluded from studies for their own protection. So here we have a huge void of credible science on pregnancy. And then a couple decades later, that void is filled with junk science, racist science. In other words, during the late 80s and 90s, when there was a panic around pregnant women, particularly black pregnant women and cocaine use, there was a rush to judgment and reports, non-peer-reviewed reports that claimed an association between particularly maternal drug use and child abuse. So the state has launched a controversial counteroffensive. At that time, the crack baby story was everywhere on the news. 22-year-old Denise Gathers gave birth twice last year. Both infants tested positive for cocaine. In February, prosecutors in the coastal city of Fort Lauderdale, knowing that drug charges just wouldn't stick, charged Denise instead with child abuse. I'm not going to plead guilty to child abuse because I didn't abuse no child. This is not something to punish a person for. I think being addicted to crack cocaine is punishment enough. The woman in that report was facing up to 30 years in prison and state-mandated drug testing for, quote, the rest of her childbearing years. These sentences fell disproportionately on black women. In 1985 a relatively small research study was taken up by popular news media at the time and whipped into a full-fledged panic. The panic was over the idea that crack exposure in the womb had catastrophic effects on babies born to crack-addicted women, an idea that never turned out to be true. Even the author of that study pushed back on the popular perception of, quote, crack babies. But it didn't matter. The narrative covered up complex problems of poverty, addiction, and racism with an easy scapegoat. Black women. In 1989, the Washington Post ran an opinion piece calling the children of these women, quote, a bio-underclass, and even went so far as to say, quote, the dead babies may be the lucky ones. The publisher of the New York Times the same year argued in an op-ed that crack-addicted women should lose their parental rights. We now know a lot more than we knew then. But Lynn says it doesn't matter. The shadow of all of this still looms large and explains a lot of our thinking behind pregnancy and drug use today. Many people are surprised to know that until 2014, no state legislature actually passed a law authorizing the arrest of someone because they were pregnant and used a controlled substance. And that was Tennessee. 
uh, passed what was called a fetal assault law. Lawmakers said the fetal assault law was meant to respond to the opioid epidemic. And if you were prosecuted under the law, you more or less got to choose between up to a year in prison or mandatory addiction treatment. That law went into effect for two years, and its impact was so devastating. Its impact was to deter women from getting health care, from not coming in for prenatal care. All kinds of women who didn't use opioids were arrested as a result that that law went out of effect in 2016. Also real important to point out is that the number of drug-addicted babies born in Tennessee didn't budge. So this is an evidence-free, science-free, social science-free zone in which families are essentially terrorized, often economically devastated, and far too often separated when they should be bonding based on unsupported assumptions about the relationship between drug use and child neglect and abuse. Despite the limitations on pregnancy research, legalization has spurred more and more researchers to ask the question, does marijuana negatively impact a developing fetus? Does it harm cognitive development, birth weight, or even sleep? Well, remember earlier when I mentioned that there are lots of limitations on research into both weed and pregnancy? Well, you have to know that any findings out there have limitations, too. In fact, a group of researchers gathered up many of these studies and analyzed them. The findings were just published in May in the journal Frontiers in Psychology. Here's the answer they came away with. Quote, in general, prenatal cannabis exposure was associated with few effects, negative or positive. Knowing all that you know now, now would be a good time to go back to Gail. Last fall, she had this visit from a caseworker that left her feeling like her case had already been decided. And then a few weeks later, she goes to her mailbox and lo and behold, there's a letter from the state of Colorado. It read. The Department of Human Services has completed an assessment of allegation of child abuse and or neglect. The letter said the allegation was confirmed, meaning, yeah, the agency believes she abused her child. I never abused my child. Don't believe that. And I don't believe I neglected my child because I still got prenatal care in my pregnancy. So I don't understand how that's neglect either. It has her name written down. It says severity minor. What was the first thing that you did after you read this letter? I rolled my eyes. <laughs> that's, that's honestly what I did. I've already cried enough about this whole situation. I really thought maybe it was going to be dropped. And then it was just fight or flight. Let's fight it. Gail appealed the finding with legal help from a Colorado-based advocacy group. In March of this year, she reached a settlement with the state. It doesn't erase her record with the Department of Human Services, meaning that the fact that the hospital reported her for abuse will stay on her record. But the fact that the agency, quote-unquote, confirmed the abuse should not show up on a standard background check. Now, this isn't really the same thing as absolving her, per se. But after months of appeals, Gail still sees this as a win. This is part of the reason that we're not using her real name. Because, well, she might not be out of the woods yet. Her nursing license is up for renewal this fall. She doesn't think it's likely to come up, but she's preparing for the possibility. 
I'm not saying I'm 100% in the right because I smoked pot during my pregnancy, but I don't think it was the worst thing I could have done. I want to be extra crystal clear here. Gail is fortunate for lots of different reasons. She's a white woman, for starters. But Lynn Paltrow at the National Advocates for Pregnant Women says black and brown women are far more often at the center of these cases. They're the ones most likely to face child removal. There's a whole other conceptual thing to think about, and that is this belief that the outcome of pregnancy depends primarily, if not only, on what happens during that pregnancy. What has the woman done? What hasn't she done? Has she gotten prenatal care? What is their socioeconomic status? Do they have access to good quality health care and nutritious food? Do they live somewhere with access to clean air and clean water? It has always been virtually impossible to isolate just one of these factors. The fact is, I think we're learning that really the most important thing to pregnancy outcome is the life course of the woman before she ever became pregnant. Did she have a lifetime of high cortisol levels, the stress hormone, because she's experienced racism relentlessly every day in her life, which is now what they think account is part of what explains the huge difference in black maternal mortality and morbidity. Not anything black women are doing during their pregnancies. The fact of the matter is that in the eyes of our healthcare system or our criminal justice system and across all different parts of our society, pregnant people are seen as walking vectors of risk. People who become pregnant with child don't turn into children. How does this leave you feeling as a mother, having been through this whole experience? I felt like a failure. I felt stupid. It was really, really hard. I broke down. I don't want them to ever have to take my baby away, and I don't want them to take her away for this issue either, you know? It's really scary when you think, like, the government might come in and take a child away from you. To me, I felt like I did everything. I'm doing everything the best I can. You know, I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes and everything like that. But... I don't think my mistake that I made was something worth... I don't think this is worth it. Yeah. I don't think any... It's worth it for any mom. You get hungry? Are you getting hungry? Yeah, you got your pizza? You have anything to say? Say mommy's the best? Daddy's okay too? An earlier version of this episode contained a couple of factual errors that have since been corrected. First, to acknowledge that Colorado law changed this year, in 2020. It no longer equates a positive drug test with a finding of child abuse. Though, as I mentioned, that's still true in other states. Also, Gail got access to a lawyer through an advocacy group here in Colorado that provides free legal help to those who need it. It's called Elephant Circle. My apologies, and thanks for sticking with us. On Something is a labor of love reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. This show is produced by Mark Pagan and Rebecca Romberg. 
Our editor is Curtis Fox. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Our executive producers are Kevin Dale and Brad Turner. On Something is made possible by lots of talented people, like Rachel Estabrook, Dennis Funk, Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Dave Burdick, Allison Borden, Matt Herz, Kendall Smith, and Jody Gersh. Our illustrator is Iris Gottlieb. See more of their art on Instagram, at Iris Gottlieb. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net. Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, blockchain, FDA compliance, and litigation. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com.